Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Should all older adults get tested for dementia? It's a topic on a lot of people's minds, um, especially when you get to age 80, where one out of every three people have dementia and um, over 85, it's almost one out of two. So it's a topic um, a lot of people feel, uh, I, I want to say it's kind of... Um, controversial in the sense that uh, people get very emotional over this topic. Do you really want to know? And what's the right time to know? So joining me now, um, I'm so happy to have with us Dr. Um, Malaz Bustani. He's from Indiana University and joins us now. Welcome, Dr. Bustani. Thank you so much for the invitation and, and the opportunity to share our lessons and our experience with your audience. So I know that you've actually conducted research on people um, and testing for dementia. Tell us a little bit about what you focused on. So I've been going after the benefit and harms of dementia screening in primary care for the past almost 20 years. Um, I started first when I was in North Carolina and I conducted a series of nine systematic evidence review uh, for uh, organizing a report to the United States Preventive Service Task Force to literally answer the question, is there sufficient uh, data to understand the benefits and the harms of screening people um, uh, without, ask, without them asking for screening? So technically the question we try to address, you are a primary care patient, you're going to see your doctor in your typical clinic. You don't have at least no perception of symptoms of memory and any other cognitive symptoms. Your family member are not bringing this to the attention of the primary care doctor. Should the primary care doctor um, ask you to and screen you for the presence of dementia, is the benefit of such screening outweigh the potential harms? So in other words, were you isolating, was it was it defined by a certain age group over the age of 70? 65. So we, we started 65 and older, um, just because that was the place where all of a sudden the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease and other related dementia go from one per thousand or so to go to almost one per 10 or one per 11. So it was a good kind of a, a tipping point uh, on the trajectory. Obviously the folks who are, as you know, 80 and older, they are the highest uh, uh, prevalence uh, group, almost one out of three, one out of four. So we, we decided to look at 65 and older and come into the primary care doctor. So that's that was our focus in 2002. So I'm interested, I mean, we're gonna to get to the results obviously, but I imagine, um, you know, since I've launched Being Patient, there's not a week that goes by where I don't get a call for, from someone saying, oh, um, you know, my mother, my father, uh, but they've been diagnosed with MCI and it's almost kind of a relief to hear MCI and not dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, so I'm curious, is it, do you find that most people actually don't really want to know if they have dementia? Well, you know, um, we, we actually, uh, survey them. So around 2000 and I think six or so, uh, we got funded from the national Institute on health to, uh, measure the attitude, the public attitude of screening for dementia. 
do they want to or they don't know, want to? And we looked for two type of group, the same primary care patients, 65 and older, attending their clinic, we surveyed them. And they're the family member of somebody who had already Alzheimer's disease. And so when we asked the question, would you like to be screened for Alzheimer's disease? Almost 85% said yes, uh, from those who did not have uh, uh, family members. The family members, they were less optimistic. Uh, people said close to 75 said, I would like to be screened. And then when we said, oh, you said you like to be screened, let me go ahead and screen you. That number dropped when it became reality a little bit. Uh, but then um, we asked them and find out why did you say yes? Even though it was somewhere between 20 to 30% who said no, uh, we figured out who were these folks who said no. Apparently the folks who said no, they did not believe there would be benefits. That was the main driving force for them. Um, then everything was okay. But then the big surprise for us in 2005, and it continued until now, after we screened the folks who accepted the screening, um, and then um, around, at that time, around 13% of them, that was in 2006, 2007 or so, 13% screened positive. Then we said, all right, you know, you screen positive. It's, it's not 100% you have Alzheimer's disease. Let's bring you over or we can come over to you for conducting diagnostic assessment. And our biggest surprise, at that time, 50% of people who screen positive refused coming back for diagnostic assessment. They tried to assess them, but they didn't want to know what the answer was. We, we, you know, we, we screened them positive. We said it's screen positive, but you know, it's not, that doesn't mean you have Alzheimer. Uh, let's just find out if you have Alzheimer, we'll do more diagnostic assessment. And these diagnostic assessments were not invasive or anything like that. 50% in 2006 or so refused. When we find out why, we try to figure out why, and all of a sudden the driving force for their decision was their perception of stigma what I call it the three Ds. If the folks who felt, if I found out I have Alzheimer's disease, I will lose my driving license. Mm. I will lose my home, meaning dependency, and I will lose my dignity. People will think I'm crazy. The folks who have these perceptions or reality or concern, they were the one who has the highest chance of refusing diagnostic assessment after screening. So that was a big surprise for us. We repeated it again and again, and instead of things getting better, actually get worse. Our last survey, our last attempt showed 70% of people who screen positive refuse diagnostic assessment. 70, wow. So you can assume, according to your research, most people just don't want to know. When it comes down to it, it's just too scary, probably. Or like you said, the stigma attached to having dementia um, really can change um, a person's, uh, not only how um, they feel probably about themselves, but how society is looking on them. Is it, according to the research, how important is it to get a diagnosis of dementia? I mean, you know, the cynics out there will say, well, there's not really a cure. There's not a whole lot you can do. What do you have to say to that? Well, you know, that was, again, uh, it's telling you about the, the perception and how much perception driving everything else. So when we end up asking the question, um, what 
what's the you know what do you want from treating Alzheimer's disease if that question the answer is I want a cure for Alzheimer's disease then the answer we do not have a cure for Alzheimer's disease the same way we do not have a cure for coronary artery disease we do not have a cure um, for um, um, for diabetes we don't have a cure for hyperlipidemia these chronic diseases we live with we can't cure them but if you ask the question is there anything i can do to reduce the cognitive disability cope better with the cognitive disability the functional disability and the behavioral and psychological disability the answer is absolutely yes we actually conducted randomized control trial in 2006 where we put together a really nice model of care for taking care of patients with Alzheimer's disease and their loved one. And our results were outstanding. We reduced the behavioral and psychological symptoms of Alzheimer's disease patient three times to four times more than a drug. We end up reducing the stress of caregiver by almost 50 to 90% within six to 12 months. We were able to keep patients in their home longer. We were able to keep them away from the hospital. And even for a health plan and an insurance, we were able to save them somewhere between $1,500 to $3,000. Well, I think a lot of people will want to know. Wait, I got to stop you for a second. Uh, $1,500 to $3,000, how do you save them money? By, by technically making sure they don't receive inappropriate care. So an example, the, the person who has Alzheimer's disease and have other chronic comorbid condition, imagine you end up having pneumonia. In the, in the rule of thumb, like let's go to the hospital. If your brain was okay and you go to the hospital, the benefit of being in the hospital outweigh the harms. If you have Alzheimer's disease, the benefit of being in the hospital does not outweigh the harms. You actually have a much higher chance of falling, much higher chance of getting the wrong medicine, getting agitated. So by just managing the stress of the family caregiver, making sure patient taking the right medicine, stopping, stopping the wrong medicine, we were able to save significant amount of money and keeping people at home and take care of the family members and the patient's symptoms and quality of life. I mean, what you're describing sounds to me like more of a uh, precision uh, medicine um, type of model, right? It's like looking at the whole person, understanding um, what you can treat, how you can help, um, and, and it's a more holistic approach, is it not? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's tough. Um, people have been talking about personalized medicine and precision health just from the genetic piece. And Alzheimer's disease genetic is just one factor. Actually, we profile the, 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 the need, the biopsychosocial need, not just of the patient, but also the family member. And then based on that, we co-develop with the patient and family a care plan. And then we monitor the performance of care plan and adjust it, you know, in a, in a regular basis. We start usually adjusting every month for three months, then if everything okay, once a quarter, and we always have on-demand team that if anything came up, by just organizing the way we operate and the way we deliver care, we were able to accomplish the quadruple aim, better health, better care, lower costs, and great experience. Let me ask you the question another way. What does it mean when people don't get tested? Let's say that you are on the road to dementia, but you just don't wanna know. What does that mean to them and their health? 
Well, I think right now we have some data to look at the unintended consequences, potentially. Um, so the first big one is most people with Alzheimer's disease do not have just Alzheimer's disease. They have other chronic condition. And most of these chronic conditions require medications, adherence. If your cognitions is not perfect and you're not doing well, there's a good chance you're not gonna be able to take the right medicine on the right time in the right place. And therefore the management of your other chronic condition and the additional uh, disability from these chronic condition will make your Alzheimer's disease worse, will, keep, will make you go to the hospital inappropriately, will make you transfer to, uh, to assisted living and nursing home much faster. That is one of the unintended consequences of somebody living with Alzheimer's disease and other chronic condition and not and, and still managing their condition on their own without support and without involvement of the family members. Morbidities. I mean, we, we know Alzheimer's is sometimes called diabetes type three. What, what are the biggest risk factors that you've associated with um, the treatment of Alzheimer's? Well, so um, uh, let me just make sure I understood you correctly. Are you talking about what are the risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease or what are the risk factor for uh, co-management? Yeah, comorbidities. Once you've been diagnosed, what are some of the risk factors that you find are more common to treat in order to improve the quality of life for somebody diagnosed with dementia? So the, there's two major uh, syndromes that uh, if we don't manage well when you have Alzheimer's disease, it, it increases your, your disability, your even Alzheimer's disease trajectory. The biggest one is delirium. So delirium superimposed on Alzheimer's disease. And let me define delirium. Delirium is all of a sudden acute, sudden brain failure from other medical conditions. For example, if you have Alzheimer's disease, you develop pneumonia, all of a sudden, your alertness, your attention, your confusion gets very, very worse very, very quickly. And we call that delirium syndrome. And you, within 30 days, if you develop delirium, your mortality rate is 9% more than the 7% of myocardial infarction. So patients with delirium come over to the hospital uh, for pneumonia, dehydration problem, everything else. Within 30 days, 9% of them will die. If you came over with heart attack only, 7% will die. So delirium management and delirium detection and delirium piece, that will improve your overall quality, especially if we prevented it. The other piece is really the medication. Uh, people with Alzheimer's disease, if you give them a certain type of medicine, uh, the disability from Alzheimer's disease uh, get much, much worse. Specifically, certain medicine we call anticholinergics. These are medication you found over the counter, like Benadryl, uh, sometimes medicine used for the bladder, sometimes medicine used for your vomiting and nausea. These type of class of medications, if I give it to you and you are on Alzheimer's disease, they will completely counter affect whatever medicine you're taking for Alzheimer's disease. That's one. I mean, okay, I, we have to go a little bit deeper into that because those type of medications are quite common, right? And why do people know this? I mean, I think a lot of people don't know that. Well, let me just tell you why. The big thing, why? Because I, I never got trained in the medical school of how to actually diffuse and disseminate information. 
for me as a physician scientist, I think everything to solve the problem will depend on finding a solution and put it on a bookshelf in an article. I never thought that I have to package it, I have to distribute it, I have to uh, work uh, on disseminate it in the social network and figure this out. So for the past 20 years, we, our team, since we discovered this anticholinergic um, uh, story, uh, we never actually uh, changed the, the, the prevalence of these medications because we never used the right methodology in the right way um, to, to let people know. And so I wish if I became a journalist and working with you uh, to, you know, to make that happen. Um, no one read my article when I publish in JAMA or when I published in other journal, uh, even my wife doesn't read them. So I have to translate my article to story uh, and, and, and find the right messenger for it. I did not know that until the past five years when I start studying the science of diffusion and the science of dissemination. Do we know why? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there's, there's, you know, only a few medications for Alzheimer's. I mean, are we talking about dementia broadly? Because I know that, you know, with Lewy body, there's different types of medication you would take um, more uh, that are more closely related to Parkinson's. Um, but, you know, with Alzheimer's disease, we're talking about Aricept and those type of drugs. Um, how do we know why they don't react well with these anti-collagen drugs? So just to make things clear, Deborah, it's the cholinesterase inhibitors, the medicine for Alzheimer's disease, increase certain neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Mm -hmm. The anticholinergic medicine that we discover do the opposite. So Benadryl does exactly the opposite what donopazil or Aricept do. However, both of them, what they do, they actually, um, in the best way, if you think about your brain as a car, in the car to operate, you need certain oil. Uh, the Alzheimer disease make you lose certain oil. Let's call it the choline oil. Uh, Alzheimer disease medicine add oil to you while you're losing, not enough. And these Benadryl and other anticholinergic make you lose even more of your, your oil. So without that oil, you're not going to be able to operate as a brain very well, especially emotionally. What percentage of patients were on these drugs who you, you had in your study? I'm curious. On, yeah, so right now the has not been changed for 20 years, unfortunately. 20 to 25% of people 65 and older in primary care have at least one of these strong anticholinergic medicine that affect uh, the, negatively the brain uh, health. How can people learn about a list of these drugs? I'm sure a lot of people want to know who are listening to this. Um, how, how do we know? I mean, obviously we know what Benadryl is and we know, um, you know, I, I mean, people usually take Benadryl for allergies, right? So are, is it all the allergy medications? Because I know a lot of people are on allergy medications, especially in the springtime. So, um, is it, is it, I mean, how do we know what is that type of drug? Well, so we have created a list of these medication and scale. We've been sharing it with all over. If your, um, uh, if your colleagues contact me, I'll, I'll give you the form and we make it trying to distribute to your audience. Um, the other way we are testing different app right now uh, to empower uh, uh, the consumer uh, to know about these kind of conversation. We, we, we just got a grant 
from the NIH to test it. So it's going to take us a couple of years to do it. But for sure, the list of the medication, um, if you search Malazbustani on Google and say anticholinergic, I bet you'll get a lot of these hits. But just in case, let me know. I'll send you at least uh, the, the scale. And then uh, we can put it on your on your. Yeah, I think it's a. I, I actually think we should look at the research and do a follow up story on just that because I think a lot of people will be interested. Um, we're getting some questions in that I wanted to ask you um, from our viewers. Um, one um, is from someone who's saying our geriatric doctor ordered an MRI, which showed I'm presuming her husband had small brain bleeds. So they marked it as vascular dementia slash Alzheimer's. It also showed that he had it probably 12 to 15 years ago, but he'd never had a stroke. How accurate would you trust the MRI? And this is obviously a question around diagnosis. So I'm not sure, I don't know if you can answer that. Yeah, you know, um, so let me just tell you the rule of thumb. If Imagine a patient of mine uh, came over to our clinic. Um, the family were concerned about uh, a memory problem. We do the neuropsychological test uh, and we find out that the person has significant problem in memory and maybe in another cognitive uh, domain like language or processing speed. Um, and then we notice this cognitive uh, problem is causing that person to have uh, disability, like uh, unable to um, be independent in their day-to-day -day activity. So we end up saying this person has dementia. And then we try to figure out why this person have dementia. And we have to figure out if this is Alzheimer's disease or something else. So we order the MRI for two reasons. Number one, we're trying to look at the size of the hippocampus in particular. And if that size is much smaller than age adjusted, then we will feel even more and more confidence that this Alzheimer's disease. Then we also look at these small vessel disease, what your um, um, uh, um, you know, audience asking, and we look at them and depending on how many of these small vessel disease are causing, they might actually contribute to the cognitive deficit. We call them a small deep stroke because in a way they are not the typical stroke that we all gonna find, which is where you will lose ability to speak or move your hands. If you have a lot of these small deep strokes, they technically slow down the connection or the highway in your brain. And we call them therefore vascular uh, cognitive impairment or vascular dementia mixed with Alzheimer's disease. So I think uh, this the, what, the story that I'm hearing from this uh, person, it I would you know I would be very confident with the geriatrician say that you might have most likely mixed Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia based on the result of the MRI. Is it possible? I mean, it's possible just to have vascular dementia, right? Those little strokes and not the Alzheimer's disease. Is that possible? Well, you know, it is possible, but very improbable. Um, um, you need to have significant. You need to have significant uh, vascular lesions in a very strategic places to create the level of disability that's similar to Alzheimer's disease. Most likely you have both. Actually, when we look at the brain biopsy, the common feature in the real world is a mixed pathological feature where you have evidence with Alzheimer's pathology, uh, vascular pathology, and sometimes even Lewy body uh, pathology.
Yeah, I, I once remember I spoke to a pathologist who told me that 75% of the autopsies he does is always a combination of different dementias, right? And um, you're obviously not, I mean, but I've always wondered, is that because as we progress with Alzheimer's, it impacts different parts of the brains, and so that becomes a different type of dementia? Well, it's really, um, it's, it's the, when we, I'm a, I'm a geriat geriatrician or a, or a gerontologist. In geriatric, when, what we found is the story is not simple at all when you get older. It's much more mixed, it's much more multi-component, it's much more uh, interaction, things add to each other uh, together. So if you have a little bit of Alzheimer, a little bit of vascular, your disability get much, much more than one of these uh, alone. So that's the common things in geriatrics is you have multiple comorbidity, not just below the neck, but also even in the, in the brain. Dr. Bustani, what does it mean for research, the fact that there's a whole population of people out there who actually don't want to know that they have dementia um, and therefore are not being um, identified as, as uh, people with dementia? Well, you know, this is the, that tell me for us as a researcher, we're going to have to uh, create a system uh, that, first of all, increase the awareness of there is stuff to do for Alzheimer's disease, like any other chronic disease. This negativity and the skepticism, just because we don't have a cure. Imagine if everybody stopped taking insulin because I can't cure your diabetes. But, you know, I don't know if you know, but uh, insulin does not cure diabetes. The minute you stop insulin, you'll have diabetes. Um, so, um, so we need to work on, on spreading the positivity of what we have right now. Hopefully also uh, we can find a cure. The second thing, we need to uh, work with our communication specialists and, and work with our community to create nudges and messages and increase the awareness and protect them from the stigma. The stigma is, is not a delusion. Uh, people will might. Uh, think people are not treating them with enough dignity. Uh, they they might rush out to take them out of the home, and they might uh, even you know think about taking their driver license. If you have mild cognitive impairment from Alzheimer's disease, you are not as bad as a driver as a 16 years old person. So, so you know, I rather that, yeah. <laughs> So we have a question actually for, about that. You you've labeled it the three Ds: driving. Uh, tell me the other two. Dependence and dignity. Dependence and dignity. So um, the question is, how do we change those attitudes? That's a really hard thing. Um, how do we change those attitudes so people aren't ashamed? Um, how do we take out that stigma? Well, I'll tell you, I started with myself. So number one, I, I you know, I actually educate myself about how what's the best way of sending messages. So uh, I start looking around and apparently the best way is when you, when you find the right messenger, uh, like celebrity who share and, and whatever they're going through. So I tell the story of, of, uh, of not just my family, but also my concern with mental health. I had um, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder. I tell everybody about it. I work on it. So I try step by step um, show that there's no stigma or trying to open the door. So that's for me personally. I think with your work, with all of local community, trying to share this story, create different persona for Alzheimer's disease. People who see Alzheimer's disease and they have a very different picture than what it is in the real world. 
and you know a great example i saw is uh, is one of the amazing um uh, actors and 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 singer um um i forgot his name um he he continued his tour until almost uh, the end um and um, and they were they did documentary on cnn of his story and um campbell uh, you're talking yeah, about yeah campbell so that was um, unbelievable that was unbelievable and then his daughter created an amazing song and and you know it's a, uh, let me do the memory you know uh, that was her her song so um storytelling i think uh, uh and being out there and be brave and share your story and um and team up and partner with the specialist in communication outreach and one of the things we're trying to do on being patient is really look at dementia from the patient's perspective right have them enlighten us about what it's like to live with dementia and what we've been um we've gained enormous insights from just looking at that first person perspective it, it actually gives me a lot of comfort um because i we're seeing through um, a lot of our patient advisors um, and people who come on to being patient perspectives just that it is okay you can live well to a certain extent with dementia you know um it's not um, always just, uh, you know, you don't have to look at it as a death sentence. And so I think um, really listening to um, people's perspectives from caregivers um, and patients, we can gain a lot um, in, of insight. Well, I can tell you, I tell my, my patients, I wish sometime to have the courage to live the presence like Alzheimer's disease does for us. You know, Alzheimer's disease relieves you from the anxiety of the future and the chain of the past and make you live the present. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. And on that, we will leave you. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Bassani. I, I'm you know, very interested in your research. I hope that you'll keep us up to date, keep us abreast of what's going on. Um, and you know, how do people um, get in touch if they need to? Do you have a website or I'm sure, you know, uh, if we want to learn more about your research at Indiana University? I think the best way is to do two things. You always ask Siri about Malachi Sani and you'll find me and you email me and I'll always answer that email. Number two, I have a website, our Center for Health Innovation Implementation Science. The website is www.hii.iu.edu. Okay, we'll pay, post that too. On we'll, our we'll go from there. We'll, we'll post it too. Thank you so much and thanks for joining us. And as always, if you want to see these interviews, we post them on beingpatient.com. If you haven't already done so, sign up for our newsletter on the on um, our website and we will let you know, um, give you more information on these talks. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, today's was a really informative one. Thanks so much for joining us.